my favorite part of the talk. It's right before the words begin, and there's this sense of gathering. So nice to be together in the hall and perhaps feel the presence of unseen beings with us rejoicing in the Dharma. And we're practicing here in the middle of the forest, trees around and so many unseen beings in the forest sharing this place of practice with us. Really, we're in their home here. And this sense of recognizing the history of the land all the many beings and ancestors who have dwelled here on this sacred land. A deep sense of respect and honoring of all that has come before here. And also all that is still happening all around us. The deep presence of the trees and the sky and the melting snow. So we've been sharing some reflections on the four Brahma Viharas. Brahma meaning divine or safe, protected sacred, and vihara is a dwelling place, place to live. The Brahma vihara is a safe place to live. Sharon Salzberg, I think, says that. It's just a good place to hang out in the Brahma viharas. And so tonight I want to share reflections on nature, on all things wild, and how we can learn about the Brahma viharas from nature. And don't we, have you found that? Sitting here or wandering in the woods, the sense of tenderness evoked among the trees and a deep sense of presence, simplicity just here now. And maybe some joy in the springtime, the warmer weather the birds. And I've heard from some of you just the sense of uh, feeling rooted as we wander in the trees and a sense of deep okayness. We can kind of let all our stories go. Feeling held here by Grandmother Earth and the light. There's a softness here. So inviting to practice. I really enjoyed getting to talk to some of you in the groups. The snoring porcupine, the skunk, the discoveries of the great owls and the hawks sharing this land. Heard some stories of, um, yeah, wondering when the snow was fresh and seeing the tracks of all the animals. 
and uh, there's these very big deer tracks in the snow. Maybe some of you have seen them. And for years, I've seen them here in the winter, these big tracks. And I was always in silence and retreat. And I thought, oh, the elk are back. <laughs> and I had this whole story about these herds of elk that wander through the woods, <laughs> big tracks, and finding their piles of poop. Elk, amazing. <laughs> And so I shared this with some of you in a group, and one yogi was kind enough to inform me that elk don't live in New England. <laughs> I was so surprised at first, and then, you know, perception, how we have these fake stories about what's here, and then the beauty of realizing, oh, the deer are just really big. <laughs> So I think one reason I thought there were all these elk here is that I've been practicing. I mentioned in the beginning of the month that I've been living in the woods in Oregon for um, the last year or so, a little more than a year, uh, mostly in in silent meditation retreat. And so uh, my partner was there with me, but I had the princess cabin, and he lived in a tent. It's just a little far, you know, walk away. And we were pretty good about keeping silence. I would bring his meal out, but we were mostly in silence. And uh, practicing, practicing in the, through the seasons in the mountains. And so really a lot of this talk, I want to share some of the stories and the, the realizations that have come from this long time in the mountains, in the forests, wilderness. My first long retreat was also in a cabin. Um, my first month long, I was in Colorado living in a retreat center there and had a little tiny cabin I was living. And we all as a community went into retreat for a month. And I had never done that before. We were very in a lot of solitude, didn't see anybody really for that month. And um, somebody sent me a copy of the Metta Sutta, my first contact with the Metta Sutta. And I didn't really know anything about it, and but I loved it right away, and I taped it to my door. And I remember brushing my teeth every night and memorizing the Metta Sutta. It was my break from all my meditation, and um, just feeling so relieved after a day of solitude and a lot of loneliness to get to read these words that felt so connecting the sense of touching, reaching out and touching all these other people who I knew were in retreat in the hills there and spreading out across the land. These lines are so evocative, this wishing in gladness and in safety. May all beings be at ease. Whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, medium, short or small, the greater the mighty, those living near and far away, those born and to be born, may all beings be at ease. And it was always a kind of soothing balm for the difficulty that I was having that retreat, all the solitude and feeling so alone. I think we've been doing this together here. Devin's been speaking about the metta mind, 
in growing this practice, I think yesterday he was talking about how we do metta, we do metta, and then at some point, it just sort of becomes metta. And we're just being it, the sense of resting back, letting the metta just permeate, suffuse, expanding the sense of kindness. And I think this is what the Metta Sutta does and what nature does is we start to realize, oh, it's all, it's all just Metta. <laughs> Doesn't it feel that way sometimes? The trees and... Hmm, a sense of sentience, right? We say all beings, but trees are beings and rocks are beings and stars are beings. The deep wisdom of so many indigenous cultures that have known that everything is spirited. Everything is calling us again and again into presence and to love, really. We can sense the intelligence in the wild things. And so our Beloved, renowned author, feminist theorist, cultural critic, Bell Hooks, who passed away a couple years ago. Bell Hooks says, when we love the earth, we are able to love ourselves more fully. I believe this. The ancestors taught me it was so. And I think so often in the spin of things in our daily lives, we often forget that we have this earth nature, that we are earth, we are nature. And we too arise out of conditions and causes made of the elements, air and earth and heat and water, it's just it earth sitting on earth and we're participating in it all there's no separation but we forget so often don't we when we feel alienated and lonely and separate kind of from it all splintered off and so it's been so just deeply I'm blessed to get to be here with you all and feel that nature coming out, don't we? In practice, we start to feel like this mind, oh, it's just so wild (sighs) and uncontrollable and just nature happening, just causes and conditions. These qualities of kindness that grow in compassion and joy this deep equanimity, this stability, steadiness of mind. They feel so impersonal, don't they? They're just like blessings that come. It's so natural. And so metta, this kindness, benevolence, friendliness, a kind of... Um, Attending to, tending, tenderness and care. Invitation to just attend. 
And can we widen that attention to include all that is around us, this nature? I remember on my first three-month retreat at IMS, Rebecca telling us that in her view, nature is the Earth's metta. And I love that. I always think about that now. Just walking the loop and seeing the birds and the changing seasons. And so, because nature is the Earth's metta, it makes sense that we would have our retreat centers in nature. And that the Buddha always invited us to practice at the roots of the trees. The Sangha was often dwelling in, in nature, in a forest like this one. And so I wanted to share some images. The suttas are so replete, so full of beautiful images, often from nature. And I wanted to share three um, that I found really helpful in the practice of samadhi. So the Buddha shares these different images that correspond with the jhanas. So these might be familiar to some of you. The first one, first one is a little bit less obvious, but it's um, coming from the time of the Buddha. The way that they made soap at that time was that soap came in a kind of powder. And so a bath person who was in charge of making soap would take the powder and knead it, mix it with oil and water so that everything, every part of the, this soap ball became pervaded and suffused and drenched in a kind of oil so that nothing, it all stuck together. It wasn't falling apart, this kind of coherence coming together. And the Buddha says it's just like a bath person who's kneading this soap powder with oil and water and then it's getting suffused, all evenly homogenized throughout this ball of soap. So that's the first jhana, this image. Not necessarily coming from nature, but there you go, first jhana, a ball of soap powder. And then the second jhana, this is what the Buddha says, The practitioner makes rapture and pleasure born of concentration drench, steep, fill, and pervade her body so there's no part of her whole body unpervaded by the rapture and pleasure born of concentration. Just as though there were a lake whose waters welled up from below and it had no inflow from east, west, north, or south, and would not be replenished from time to time by showers of rain, then the cool fount of water welling up in the lake would make the cool water drench, steep, fill, and pervade the lake so that there would be no part of the whole lake unpervaded by cool water. So this sense of welling up from below... And in a hot culture, you can imagine, hot climate, you can imagine the cool waters of the lake pervading and drenching and filling and what a refreshing image that is coming up from below. And 
And then the third jhana, I think this one's even better. <sighs> this yoga makes the pleasure divested of rapture, drench, steep, fill, and pervade this body so that there's no part of their whole body unpervaded by the pleasure divested of rapture. Just as in a pond of blue or red or white lotuses, some lotuses that are born and grow in the water thrive immersed in the water without rising out of it. And cool water drenches, steeps, fills, and pervades them to their tips and their roots so that there's no part of all those lotuses unpervaded by cool water. So too, a yogi makes the pleasure divested of rapture, drench, steep, fill, and pervade this body. So sometimes using these images can help our practice, can help further this sense of really filling out the metta mind and letting the whole body absorb all this goodness of metta. So a story. This was about a year ago, early spring in Oregon. Very similar, lots of snow on the ground, and um, there I was, living in the cabin, doing my practice, my partner living in his tent. And at a certain point, he came to get his lunch one day, and he said, you know, it's really good out in the tent, but I could use a couple hours of warmth in the cabin every day. And so we weren't really practicing together. We were going separate, and so he asked, like, would you be willing to practice outside in the afternoons? And I had this whole image of myself loving the outdoors and being like, of course, I'm so into the wilderness for sure. (laughs) So we decided we made this rhythm where I would have the cabin in the mornings and he would come in in the afternoon and I had the whole afternoon outside. It was so interesting to watch my mind because of course I wanted to offer that to him. And at the same time I was like, oh, it's kind of like cold and there's weather out there. Like the tent is not very warm, and there's all kinds of things happening wind, and you know, there's lots of wild animals. And I realized I actually wasn't so excited about spending the afternoons outside all afternoon. So I went through this whole process, you know, there's some samadhi, and so I was really intent on like, what am I going to need? I'm going to need a really comfortable chair and really warm, you know, all the layers. I'm going to take my thermos of tea. Really getting myself set, so is it going to be okay? And pretty much every day, I went through this whole process of like, okay, like getting myself pumped up to go outside. And then inevitably, it was so interesting to watch the fear and the anticipation. Just when I got out there, you know, this tent is on the edge of a meadow. The light is always changing. Often there are big herds of elk in the meadow. Every day, I was like amazed, so inviting, so calm, so soothing. And I would be surprised, like, look at you, you're so afraid. And then you get out there and it's so wondrous. Every day this happened. It would be snowing. I don't want to go outside in the snow and all this resistance. And sometimes those snowy days, the most magical things happen. Like one afternoon I was, it was very, very snowy. 
And so I had all my gear and I had this comfortable camp chair and I went out beyond the meadow into the woods and was just sitting with the snow coming down. And, uh, oh, this animal came out of the side, you know, came out of the woods and I was sitting very still watching this animal, sort of curious what it was, about the size of a small dog. Came, 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 very close, walked right in front of me. I don't think he noticed until I think there was maybe a whiff of my scent and this bobcat turned and looked straight at me. And so that gaze, you know, the big tufted ears and this bright green eyes, just gazing, right? I mean, it felt like there was a lot of samadhi there. And we locked eyes for a good long while. No fear, just presence. And then just so cool, like no fear at all, just moseyed right on down through the snow. It was such a teaching. Such a teaching. Again, bell hooks. When we drop fear, we can draw nearer to people. We can draw nearer to the earth. We can draw nearer to all the heavenly creatures that surround us. And I think this is true in our practice, too. You've seen some wild animals visiting you in your mind. This quote by Ajahn Chah, I love it. You might have heard it before. Ajahn Chah says, Try to be mindful and let things take their natural course. Then your mind will become still in any surroundings like a clear forest pool. All kinds of wonderful rare animals will come to drink at the pool and you will clearly see the nature of all things. You will see many strange and wonderful things come and go, but you will be still. This is the happiness of the Buddha. these enchanted realms of samadhi, the outer space travel we've been doing. Gil Fransdahl says, somehow the depth, the core of this Dharma practice isn't up to you. Something's working through you. Nothing mystical, not coming from outside but a potential, a possibility that lives in your own heart. The biological imperative for liberation. Don't you love that? The biological imperative for liberation. We all have this. So this is nature. We want to wake up. What's happening? And we're simply putting the conditions into place for this natural unfolding to happen on its own timing, in its own very imperfect way. Kind of like wild creatures coming to visit. 
So nature inviting us to receive and to open to things as they are. And to really trust the possibility of freedom that's here. One of the great Dzogchen masters, uh, master of the mind, was named Longchenpa, Tibetan teacher. He says, awareness is always refreshing itself, always newly arriving. You can neither obtain this awareness nor lose it. I salute the spontaneously perfect universal creativity, self-refreshing awareness. Universal creativity as the teacher a direct teaching that you do not need to strive for. I invoke the turning of the wheel of the natural great perfection of spontaneous presence. Natural great perfection. And so, of course, nature invites us into contemplation of the unpredictable and the harsh and the destructive also. One night this last week, I not really sleeping very well, and my partner was here. He's like, let's watch some nature videos. <laughs> and so often watching whales and turtles and fish, it's like my favorite thing in the ocean. And so we turned on this BBC special, and I'm expecting to see like the beautiful octopi, you know, the way they move and the currents. But instead, we found a documentary on, on whales, on orcas. Orcas are beautiful. But the one particular one was about how these killer whales hunt other whales. And it's so, I mean, we were both like, not very soothing <laughs> to, <laughs> to watch this herd of orcas. They cut these minor whales that swim very fast, but they're small minor whales. And they, they also go in herds, but the killer whales hunt them, like drive off individual minor whales, and then just swim until they get tired, you know, for hours. These minor whales are faster, but they'll just swim and swim and swim, and the orcas are going after them. And they just tire them out, this one minor whale. And it shows, like the video is like showing the killer whales eventually just wearing down this minor whale and then, you know, eating it. I was like, this is also part of nature. We don't want to uh, deny all of the destruction and the um, seemingly immoral part, these causes and conditions, the ticks that live in these woods. How are we with these beings? There's a lot of fear, you know, nature that's gnarly and difficult and dangerous and unforgiving. Rebecca read such a beautiful tenderizing story today and I felt all of us kind of get tender. Can we let nature tenderize us in the same way even in its harshness and in its sorrow we're all living in these times of such unpredictability and 
Watching weather patterns swing out of control, species dying. And this, I think, is a territory of karuna, of being willing to confront the difficult, the sorrow, the loss, the grief. Can this heart be with it all? Take it in, not turn away. That part of compassion that turns towards the difficult. Joanna Macy and Tanisra teaching us about how to touch the deep heartbreak that's here. Up in the woods where we've been, in this cabin, there's a walking route that I take most days. And again, maybe mid-spring last year, I found a a turkey nest. There's all these wild turkeys, and there's one uh, wild turkey who's sitting on her nest very diligently. So great. There's such personalities. And so I would go and visit every day and watch this wild turkey sitting on her eggs. There's a lot of eggs under there. So many, maybe 20 eggs. And one morning I came by and I saw that there was feathers all around. Feathers had been shed. And she was there, but she was clearly ruffled. Something had happened during the night. And usually she's okay with me passing by, but this morning she was all kind of scared and you know, flapped up from her eggs. And I saw that the eggs, some had been eaten. Eggshells around and baby chicks and whoa, you know, and this sensitive, tenderized heart in retreat, I just like couldn't, it was so devastating. I thought, what do I do? Do I do something? Do I not? What do I do? Like, And this sense of inevitability, right? These coyotes or whoever had found the nest, this is what happens. So exposed and so vulnerable. And I think this is the practice of karuna, of letting it touch us, knowing we're participating in it. And then how do we let that bravery, that contact with the difficult, wisen the heart so a skillful response emerges? A skillful response that isn't planned, that can't be figured out so much. I think that's what these times call for kind of creative and unexpected response. And for me, I just keep coming back to this sense that it's love that liberates. And so if we love it, how do we let that metta heart lead us to collective freedom? How do we trust that? And of course, we have to stay in touch with mudita, with this appreciative joy that brings strength and resilience and fortitude and delight. And just in the past couple of days, have you seen the little daffodils that are starting to grow by the path? And the trees that are just budding out. And we use that kind of joy to sustain us, to trust the life force, this biological imperative for liberation. 
It's been so nice some of these mornings as the sun's rising to be chanting with you all and to feel the sweetness of the sunrise, pay homage to the sunrise. In winter here without the tree or without the leaves we can see the whole horizon light up. Such a gift. Audre Lorde says, For once we begin to feel deeply all the aspects of our lives, we begin to demand from ourselves and from our life pursuits that they feel in accordance with that joy which we know ourselves to be capable of. So this practice that we've been doing, this depth of feeling, allowing all of the heart's machinations, its changes, its ups and downs, allowing ourselves to feel it, this deep intergenerational work we're doing of love and transformation. This is what opens up the possibility for deeper and deeper joy. And then the system won't have anything else. It just keeps inclining more and more and more towards the good. I think Rebecca mentioned Zenju Earthlin Manuel this morning, this wonderful wisdom keeper, Zen lineage holder. Their book, The Way of Tenderness. And so this is what Zenju says. She says, We must come through the fire of our lives to experience awakening. We are all tender and sore from the hatred. No matter where we fall on the continua within race, sexuality, and gender. We are tender in a raw sense. And not necessarily in a soft and gentle way. This tenderness is of a wounded nature. Our tenderness is our aching, sensitivity, and ultimately our vulnerability. Can we be tender in the raw sense and still actively walk the path of liberation? Can we be tender in the raw sense and still actively walk the path of liberation? I think Zenju is talking about upeka, this equanimity that can feel it all and still orient itself towards liberation, towards freedom. Again, on that walking trail in the mountains that I take every day, there's great, huge ponderosa pine trees, like enormous grandfather trees. And in southern Oregon, where we live, it's a very serious drought, many trees dying. And so even over the past 14 months, there's many trees that have died since we've been up there. And um, there's two really huge ponderosas that have died and are now really leaning, like very much, and sway like strong in the winds. And each windstorm that came, I was like, are the trees going to fall? When is it going to happen? And walking by and kind of feeling the gravity of that, just this huge event is going to happen when these trees fall. And at the same time, about May or June last year, 
um, I knew, I knew in this land there's this very special place where the lady slipper orchids grow. They're a little smaller than the ones they have in these woods here, but very rare. And it's right at the foot of those ponderosa pines. It was so poignant to go always and feel the sense of death and change and the, the trees falling over, over almost, and then this delicate, sweet flower at the foot. I think that's the paradox of nature and the call that we have to uh, let it all in. To find a kind of rootedness in the middle of it all. This image of the full moonlight for equanimity that we have is not so apt. The beauty and coolness of the full moon. And the ways that, I think when we're on retreat, we're more in touch with the rhythm of the moon, the changing cycles. There's this sense we've just crossed the spring equinox. And just a sense of something changes in these turnings and the way the moon is, the full moon, the dark of the moon. And there's a kind of equanimity, I think, in just knowing that moon cycles through, and it has for so long. Just keeping going, like the waves of the ocean. Just <laughs> right? All of the vicissitudes of humankind and the Grand Canyon. Right? With layers of rock, the way the Colorado River just flows still. Flowing and flowing and flowing. And so with all of that change in the rhythms, can we trust kind of our own rhythms of mood states and mind states and the vicissitudes of this heart? Maybe it can feel a little easier to ride those waves knowing like the waves have been pounding the shores of the earth for millennia. Just the scope of things that nature invites us into. Yeah, nature teaching us equanimity. Hmm. This is a poem by Fleur Adcock, who is an elderly New Zealand poet. Talking about how to really be with ourselves just as we are. It's called Weathering. Literally thin-skinned, I suppose. My face catches the wind off the snow line and flushes with a flesh that will never wholly settle. Well, that was a metropolitan vanity, wanting to look young forever. I was never a pre-Raphaelite beauty, nor anything or pretty enough to satisfy. But now that I'm in love with a place, which doesn't care how I look, or if I'm happy, happy is how I look, and that's all. My hair will turn gray in any case. My nails chip and flake. My waist thicken. And the years work all their usual changes. If my face is to be weather-beaten, that's little enough lost. A fair bargain for a year among lakes and fells. When simply to look out of my window at the high pass makes me indifferent to mirrors and to what my soul may wear over its new complexion. When simply to look out of my window at the high pass 
makes me indifferent to mirrors. This profound acceptance of who we are, the naturalness, her willingness to just be herself. And so I think that's what nature is calling us back to again and again. What if this moment is just enough? What if this heart and mind and this particular practice is just enough as it is right now? We don't need to add anything else. A sense of resting. Can we rest into the quality of the light and the coming spring? And knowing that this is when the heart opens, when we're relaxed. We're just with things as they are. Nothing to fix or embellish. And so may we allow nature to teach us about the heart. About all of these different facets. The love and the compassion, the delight and the stability. And this fascinating kind of wondrous thing of being in a human body at this place and time that we've been born on a beautiful planet. And can we let that teach us about love? So just to finish, this passage is by Tozan, who is a famous Zen master. The blue mountain is the mother of the white cloud. The white cloud is the daughter of the blue mountain. All day long they depend on each other without being dependent on each other. The white cloud is always the white cloud. The blue mountain is always the blue mountain. What does that mean? (laughs) I'll read it again, just so we can take it in. (laughs) The blue mountain is the mother of the white cloud. The white cloud is the daughter of the blue mountain. All day long, they depend on each other without being dependent on each other. The white cloud is always the white cloud. The blue mountain is always the blue mountain. So let's just sit together quietly for a moment or two.
Thank you for your kind attention. And so let's just chant the um, Karaniya Metta Sutta in English to close. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.